Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. With the Conservative Party convention about to wrap up in uh, Quebec City, uninvited guests showed up in the persons of two Liberal cabinet minister, one of them being uh, Stephen Gilboa, the federal environment minister. Let's talk now with Peter McKay, who gave the uh, endorsement speech for um, Pierre Polyev yesterday. Peter, of course, the former attorney general, minister of justice, also foreign affairs minister and minister of national defense. The big question for many is, will Peter McKay run in the expected 2025 election or even sooner? Peter, thank you very much. Uh, how are you? Roy, it's always a pleasure, and I'm, I'm well. Thank you for asking. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks. Um, your speech endorsing uh, Mr. Polyev, I would imagine it's quite clear he would like you to return to federal politics. So let me ask you, first of all, are you considering that? Well, Roy, as I, I think I've said to you and, and others, uh, I'm not pining to get back in politics. I spent 18 years of my life uh, as an elected official. And I'm uh, content in the private sector. I've got three small kids, uh, a very supportive spouse. But I'm not ruling anything out. And, and why would I? But I, I have no immediate plans to come back, no. A few people have asked me since I mentioned that you were going to be on the air with me today, reminded me about your famous quote after the 2019 election, which I think was absolutely correct, about the party missing an empty net. It still resonates. What's different, Peter, about the Conservative Party of today versus the party of 2019, and for that matter, 2021? And what's different about your leader today versus Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole? Well, look, these are all good questions. I think the, the first thing I'd have to point out is that was an after-election uh, comment that was perhaps flippant, but somewhat accurate, missing an open net. It was, it was meant to simply state that it was an election that we should have won, and I, I could argue that We've, we've missed the last two. And uh, what feels different, frankly, is that there seems to be much more focus, I dare say even more discipline within the party. We've matured on some of these issues that, uh, you know, I won't, I won't use the expression again, but those that were hung around our neck in previous campaigns that were meant to scare the electorate to suggest somehow there was an extreme and dangerous fringe to the Conservative Party, and they did that to Stephen Harper as well. I don't get the sense that this is how people are looking at Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party. They're looking to us with a sense of hope and optimism that we will focus on issues that are most important in their lives. Affordability, the cost of a home, skyrocketing taxes, interest rates that are punishing people, the job market. These are the bread and butter issues, frankly, that have always been the place where conservatives could contribute most. And Pierre Polyev, I think, is, is dialed in on solutions. And, and that's the key, Roy. Let, let's be frank. In politics, there's a lot of rhetoric on all sides. But who is going to be able to actually pull the country out of the doldrums, get people back to work, get the country back on track? We are not living up to our potential as a country, nor do we, we have the sense that this is a country that uh, that is productive, is constructive, is uh, is competing in ways 
that will create more prosperity and, and allow young people to live out their dreams. And, and that's not rhetoric, that's reality. Yeah, I don't think, Peter, that I've seen this country as disconsolate as it is yes. today, as concerned as it is today. We have more than 50% of Canadians unable, saying they may be unable to come up with $200 to meet their obligations at the end of the month. We just spoke with the Chartered Accountants of Canada last weekend, and uh, 24% of Canadians say for them to raise $500 to meet their obligations in a 24-hour period, they would have to sell something or they would have to borrow money. So we're in a situation where people are desperate. Uh, what's the... Peter, what's the policy, what's the way then to create the environment and the dynamic to provide the hope? People want more than slogans. They want direction. They want understanding. They want programs. Well, I think, you know, it would take me a little while to, to walk through a number of the policies and initiatives that have been discussed and debated here at this convention. Pierre Polyev's speech uh, is, is a good recitation of some of that formula that you're asking about. But it, it's some practical things. He's framed it in common sense terms, Roy, and, and some of that around housing involves, you know, working in a more productive way with municipalities and provinces because this does span different levels of government. Selling off a lot of government land and, and government buildings also, to me, seems like a very practical way to make more space available. It's bizarre to me how quickly this housing crisis has snuck up on us. And it has a lot to do, of course, with more people coming to this country. And yet there's also a sentiment to come back to your earlier point about people feeling desolate. I've talked to a, a number of folks who came here with great optim optimism and hope in their hearts, and they're leaving. They're actually mm -hmm. now pulling up stakes and going to the United States or, or another place to, to live out their dreams. That's not the Canada that we've grown up with, and that's not our country's character. It's not our future. We have to address our economy first. And drowning in debt, both personal debt, provincial and federal debt, is going to drag our country down further. And so, you know, it's that old adage of when you're in a hole, stop digging. We cannot continue down this path of spending money indiscriminately, of not having proper oversight of our public service of not being conscious of the fact that we're we have been living beyond our means as a country. Yeah. A significant percentage of immigrants to Canada leave after or within the first 10 years because they become disillusioned, um, unhappy with the, with what the experience in this country, what would, uh, what's your party's view on the numbers of immigrants coming to Canada? Mr. Trudeau has said by 2025, It'll be 500,000. We know there's more, more than that when we talk about students and uh, folks with, with permission to be in the country, but actual immigration at 500,000. What's your party's policy on that? Well, it, it has not been said as yet, but we are very much a pro-immigration party, always have been going back uh, generations within conservative uh, movements. And, and look, there's no question that immigration has, uh, has been the foundation of building our country. People come here with tremendous skills, tremendous, uh, you know, sense of hope and, and uh, drive that, that has built our country, built many professions. And that has to continue. What the proper number is, isn't as important as trying to calibrate the skills and the opportunities that people need and want when they come to Canada. We don't 
want nor nor should new immigrants to Canada expect to come here with credentials that are not recognized, that are not uh, embraced. We have doctors in this country driving cabs, and that's not to, to put any uh, shade on, on a cab driver, but we, we want people with those professions to be able to exercise them and, and practice the professions. And there are, there are professional organizations, the College of Physicians and others, that, that have been exclusionary. So that's, that's not entirely on government, but it is one element uh, of what you're asking about in terms of how do we get people into the workforce, which is a critically important part of immigration. People come here and they want to work. Stephen Gilbo will try to crash your convention. Environment Minister. Uh, well, I guess he's, uh, he hasn't uh, spent enough time wrecking the oil sector in, uh, in Western Canada. He thought he'd come and hang out with some conservatives. I, I thought it was quite bizarre, actually, how aggressively he and others have been trying to cast aspersions on Pierre Polyev and the party. I would uh, suggest he should just go back to trying to do his job, his own job, uh, which he's not very good at. For a victory, your party a bike, by the way, either he uh, he pulled up in a in a car, um, you know, wanted to lecture everybody about greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, doctor, heal thyself. Okay, for a victory, party has to increase its share of the Ontario vote, particularly four one six and nine zero five area codes. I'm going to be asking in a few minutes for our Ontario listeners to call in and tell us what their voting intentions may be. What's the message of the Conservative Party of Canada to 416 and 905? Well, take a look at the, the practical, thoughtful, costed policies of the Conservative Party compared to what you've seen in the last eight years. It, it is a choice, and uh, there is no question that many of these same issues around affordability and housing and tax burden uh, have to be top of mind for people in, in that part of the country. I spent you know, the last five years living in Toronto. Um, I've seen it decline. I, I have seen the struggles that people are experiencing there, as in other parts of the country. This carbon tax in particular has been very punitive for people who have to commute and don't have the choice, or in some cases, as in rural Canada, don't have the the opportunity to use public transit or alternative fuel sources. So it is that type of punitive tax where we are pulling money out of family incomes and people's pocketbooks uh, on the under the guise of lowering greenhouse gases, which isn't happening, by the way. We've missed all the targets in the last number of years under all governments, to be fair. And so it's a comparator. Boy, and, and I'm not uh, here as a representative of the Conservative Party, although I am a member. Um, the policies that you're going to see in the coming months and in the lead up to an election, I believe, are going to make the Conservative Party very competitive and, in fact, very attractive as an alternative to what we've seen under the last three liberal mandates. Peter, congratulations on a successful uh, convention and uh, your you. your introduction speech for Pierre Polyev. And thank you. You've always been accessible to me. I appreciate that. You've never said no. You've never ducked an interview. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Roy, and thank you for being such a great purveyor of the truth, which is uh, what we always hope for and expect in the media. And you've been a champion for the truth for many, many years. Ari Goldkind, criminal lawyer, media commentator in Toronto. And we're going to talk to Ari about two cases. Finally, there's going to be a public inquiry into China's interference in Canadian elections and Canadian affairs, even though they're now saying it's a, it's a 
um, public inquiry into foreign interference. China's embassy in Ottawa, by the way, has already warned this country of, quote, consequences, end quote, for the, quote, Canadian side, end quote, if we were to be so foolish as to move ahead with a full-blown critique of China, consequences. There's also the Tamara Leach and Chris Barber criminal trial, or the Justice, justice rather, Heather Perkins McKay, calling uh, a recess and scolding the prosecution over the timing of the Crown's release of text messages to the defense attorneys, and uh, the judge has expressed concern that the trial could go off the rails. I think they've got 16 days for that trial. They're in today five, and I haven't gotten a lot done. Okay, Ari Goldkind, criminal lawyer, media commentator, Toronto, joins us on The Roy Green Show. Ari, let's start with this public inquiry. The name change from a China inquiry into China's um, interference in Canada's elections to a foreign interference inquiry. They're playing games. So how public does anybody really think it's going to be, Roy? I mean, just the term public to me is the gaslight term. I can't wait to hear how much of the testimony or evidence or documentation is going to be called classified or national security. And they've lumped Russia now into this sort of has that remnant of the Mueller investigation as if anybody could care less about Russia. We all know what China does. There's nobody who doesn't know what China does. And in fact, China so brazenly just the other day when this was released, came out and said, this is essentially racist. They use the term ideological, but that's really the R word. And they said there's going to be consequences for this. So I'm a Canadian, and I think that, you know, it's basically having an inquiry, Roy, to figure out the two plus two equals four. The question will be, what, if anything, will be done about it? Will this make China more more powerful, uh, less of a reliable partner, if you even use that term, uh, for Canada? And just look at China's own response to it. China has no fear. China has all the cards. China has all the power. And Canada, because of feckless leadership for eight years, uh, has declined, not only in the eyes of the Chinese, but in the rest of the G7, G8, or G29. Yeah. You know, it surprised me because the opposition parties went along with this. I'm not so sure. I'd like to find out really whether or not they agreed to the name change. They must have to uh, being a foreign interference inquiry, because lumping Russia in with China right now is very easy because Russia has such a terrible reputation with her invasion of, of Ukraine. So it, it takes some of the edge off the China investigation, which is really what we need, what we require. And China already warning us uh, of consequences. That's just intolerable. We cannot and must not succumb to this. And that's the whole thing. But what will we do? What will we do, Ari? But this is lip service on the pig. I'm stealing that from somebody who's dumb as a post. We remember that phrase, you know, many years ago. But, you know, you add Russia into this. I mean, does anybody really think Putin could find Canada on a map right now or could care less about Canada or electoral district elections in Moose Jaw? I mean, this is so preposterous. Whereas you look at the tentacles of the Chinese Communist Party, forget just Ontario, Roy. Look at housing markets across this country. Look at money laundering. I mean, nobody talks about this. Uh, You know, I see this in the criminal justice system every day. We don't even have enough prosecutors to even bring these kinds of cases. They collapse like houses of cards. And now 
to appease China, we start calling it Russia and other countries. I mean, that's like sort of the U.S. having a foreign election interference inquiry. Is there a country on earth who interferes in more elections than the U.S.? Yeah, good question. I'm just thinking as you were talking that uh, remember when the uh, parliamentary motion was held and voted on about China being genocidal toward the Uyghurs, the Uyghur community in Xinjiang province, where forced labor is used to create um, any number of products. And the parliament, with the exception of the liberal cabinet, voted unanimously to declare China to be genocidal. The only reason that the liberal cabinet didn't vote that way is because they left all of them before the vote. That, to me, is all spoken volumes. Well, I think you've put it more politely. I think it's because this is a government that's beholden to China. This is a country that is beholden to China. I mean, there's all these terms for it that are much more geopolitical and more 12-letter words than I'm going to use. But that's why they all left the House. And if you look at the, uh, the MP that's implicated in this, just for your listeners, Roy, you know, there's an MP named Mr. Chong who voted along with this uh, position. And since then, much of this argument has been China has targeted him and his family for retribution because of his vote. But I mean, you're really dealing with David and Goliath and the idea that we're going to have this extraordinary. Here's the other thing. Your listeners, Roy, I know who your listeners are. They're actual taxpayers. They're not people on the dole. They're people who work and pay taxes. I don't think your listeners understand just how much money is going to be spent on this nonsensical inquiry that half of it's going to be buried versus all the immediate needs we have in this country and the fact that we already know what the result is going to be. We know China does this. This is not a mystery. Yeah, just a couple of weeks ago, I spoke with uh, Anna Kwok, of, uh, formerly of Hong Kong, young woman, 26 years of age, now living in Washington, D.C., and she's looking for uh, acceptance from uh, the Biden government as um, a refugee. And they haven't uh, delivered it to her. And this is a young woman, one of the, um, one of the Hong Kong uh, residents who left after China started to muscle that particular uh, former city-state uh, that was under the British for protection. She's one of the uh, one of the citizens who has a million dollar bounty on her. This country's put uh, China is putting million dollar bounties on people we don't like. People just, what else just do you need? What else do you need, Ari? Well, Roy, to put it briefly, just people don't understand because we're too busy losing time on TikTok and being distracted by the next little twenty second video to understand the power of the CCP throughout this world. If you travel, Roy, and I'm sure you've done this. And many of your listeners have. Go anywhere in Africa. Go anywhere in the Caribbean. Go anywhere in South America. Look at who is building all of the infrastructure. And by all, capital A-L-L. You can see it. It's not hidden. This is an extraordinarily powerful government that has no interest in the stupid wokeness or identity politics that's making the Western world decline. And this is why China is a beast that will not be tamed. And as you and I just said, a moment ago, Roy, they're not going to stop doing this. My sense is this inquiry will make them double down. And their comments weren't, we're open to whatever the results are. We've, it was, there's going to be consequences. What does that tell you? Two more Michaels. Uh, many more Michaels to come, I would guess. So what are you expecting then as far as this uh, inquiry is 
conclusion is concerned, what will we see? They've got 15 months, which would lead us probably pretty close to the next federal election. So what are you expecting? Well, leaving aside when and where there should be a federal election right on, you know, there's a big convention going on right here and the polls will tell you something's going to happen. I don't personally trust those polls. But, you know, you're going to have a judge who's, you know, a, a less senior member of the Quebec Court of Appeal. That gives it the premature, the imprimatur of something tremendously special, because remember, Mr. Johnston decided to take a hike once his appointment came out. And apparently this judge has been decided by all parties. So, you know, there's very little to criticize there. But I think in 15 months, you and I will go back on air and everything that's released will be one of two things. Things we already knew today. Mm -hmm. And two, the rest of it absolutely classified because of, quote, national security, end quote, implications, which is all a way of saying they're burying the bodies. Yeah, but now they're all involved. All the political parties are involved. So, and I agree with you, but they're all involved now. Ari, when we talk about trials, because this is supposed to be some kind of at least a de facto trial, this public inquiry, I guess, of China's intrusions into Canada. But the other trial that has this country talking is Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, criminal trial. And Justice Heather Perkins McKee has uh, already had called a recess and scolded the prosecution over the timing of the Crown's release of text messages to the defense attorneys. And the, the, the judge has expressed concerns. The trial could go off the rails. Ari, how often do you hear a judge make a statement like that four days into a trial? Uh, probably every week. So oh, yeah? let me okay. just, yeah. So let me just give the reason why that is. And you asked me to put my lawyer hat on, so let me squarely put it on. Okay. Very few people, when they think about what a defense lawyer does, you know, they don't realize it's not like TV. You're not Lincoln lawyer. You know, it's not a fair fight. You're not driving a Rolls Royce. You don't have a limo taking you places. You are almost always fantastically out-moneyed by a prosecutorial service, which is essentially the government, that has a bottomless pit. Now, why do I say that? Some people will say, well, you know, she's got a good lawyer in Ottawa. He charges a lot. They've raised some money to pay. Well, think through all the bank accounts that were frozen to even get to that. When you have prosecutors, Roy, in a trial that is going to be watched by Canadians, by the way, I think this is a complete ridiculous waste of time trial. It's a sham. The whole thing is a joke. I don't know if we have time to get into it, but let's take it at its highest. When you have a crown attorney who has been parachuted in because the bail crown attorney was really, I think, an embarrassment to his office and stepped down. This is the guy that had her in jail for 49 days until a superior court judge said this is preposterous. When you dump hours and hours and hours and thousands and thousands of pages of what's called disclosure, in other words, the case against your client, on people, on defendants, on accused, the night or the week before, you're essentially guaranteeing that it cannot be a fair fight. So when that happens, and it happens quite often, Roy, to your question, because I think you were expecting me to give an opposite answer, it is very common in cases such as homicide, human trafficking. Now, good crowns don't let it happen, Roy. And in fairness, 99% of crowns are fantastic. But when you have these kinds of data dumps, the morning of, you're essentially putting the defense lawyers one arm behind their back. That's what the judge is calling out because we, at least in Canada, for the time being, Roy, and I emphasize for the time being, we like to assume it's going to be as fair a fight as possible. 
And that's literally what happened in the last couple of days where the judge realizes these lawyers can't come up to speed in one night when they're being dumped 50 video files that, by the way, Roy, here to make it interesting for your audience, it's not like just going on YouTube and pressing play with an MP4 file. 90% of these files require proprietary software. It's such a pain. And that's what the judge, to her credit, is calling out. Talk about it being a sham trial. Sure. So you start with the premise that even the Crown's evidence, now this is important, this is not my defense lawyer hat speaking. Their whole thing is that the quote, hold the line, end quote. That's the important line here. That's what the Crown hangs their hat on. That phrase was meant to break the law. So let's back up for a moment. Almost every single piece of evidence they have at least shown or may be showing is that there was no violence at this protest. Chris Barber, the main one of the guys, Miss Leach is the other, kept saying, even if we go dark, make sure you continue to peacefully protest. The one charge here, the rest are bunk, the mischief, the counseling to commit mischief. I'll, I'll leave this question rhetorically with your listeners, Roy, before I get to why I think it's a sham. Does anybody think if it was a Black Lives Matter protest in Ottawa, with the exact same peacefulness, the exact same horn honking, post-George Floyd, does anybody think there'd be a 16-day trial if it was Black Lives Matters, the two leaders who organized that in Ottawa? Does anybody think there'd be a prosecution today about it? If you think that, I'll debate until the cows come home. The one charge that I think Mr. Barber will have trouble with, Roy, and by the way, I think he should have trouble with it, full disclosure, is when there was a court order that ordered the horns to stop being honked. Once you have a court order, no matter what your politics are, pro-convoy, anti-convoy, I was very outspoken at the time saying nobody should not be able to sleep, the horn honking should stop, there's different ways to do it. Once a court issues an order in this country, whether we like it or not or agree with the cause or not, for you to then counsel somebody to keep honking the horn in the face of a court order, if Mr. Barber did that, fine. But the idea that that takes 16 days, he should have been offered a very quick what's called conditional discharge, which means no criminal record, or a very uh, normal result to it. The idea that this is 16 days to me as a criminal defense lawyer is offensive to me, Roy, particularly on a day where we have eight people stabbing one guy at Don Mills Mall. We have stabbings, violent shootings. This is what we're taking up 16 days with. It's preposterous to me. In 30 seconds, how does this end? I think this ends with Miss Leach not being convicted of anything and Miss Barber, sorry, Mr. Barber probably going down with the counseling for lack of legalese terms to keep honking the horns and very little punishment to it and a complete waste of taxpayer money. I was just reading in the Washington Post, Matthew Capucci of the uh, uh, the Weather Gang in um, the Capital Weather Gang in Washington. Mr. Capucci writes about Hurricane Lee, this monster in the Atlantic. He writes, while the forecast for where Lee might end up is uncertain, the risk of a direct hit to the Canadian Maritimes around next weekend is increasing. Now listen to this. One expert wrote that fewer than 1% of all tropical cyclone fixes ever attain Category 5 strength. 
Hurricane Lee is the farthest southeast ever observed for a Cat 5 hurricane in the Atlantic since records began 172 years ago. Another report has Lee intensifying by 75 knots in one 24-hour period, placing it in the top 0.04% of all 24-hour intensity changes in the Atlantic. This is Hurricane Lee. Let's talk to an expert on the issue of hurricanes and cyclones and the environment. Professor Mark Barasa joins us from the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmosphere Science. He's an expert in hurricanes, tropical cyclones, and and uh, the environment at Florida State University. Professor Barasa, thank you for coming on the program. Do you think that uh, Lee could, in fact, track and hit Atlantic Canada? It, it could. It's uh, the the forecast tracks have a significant fraction of them doing that. So, give us a sense, please, of the power and the intensity of this storm, and how it became what it is. It's a it's a major hurricane right now. Yesterday, it was the uh, a category five, the most extreme storm. Now it's a category three because it was. Uh, tilted by the, the winds, but it's it looks like it's strengthening again. Okay, so has it does it have the possibility of returning to a Cat 5 storm? It's extremely unlikely. The waters will get colder and the conditions aren't optimal for it to, to grow to that strength. So, uh, but it's still a, a Category 3 storm. It's still, obviously, if it makes landfall, going to do some significant damage. If it were a Category 5 storm, and if it were to make landfall, would it be uh, another Katrina, hopefully missing Louisiana, hopefully missing the whole continent, but would it be another Katrina? It could be. At, at uh, these latitudes, they tend to move faster near Canada than they do in the Gulf of Mexico. So they uh, don't necessarily push up as high a storm surge. Uh, so that's one of the uh, main killers more than the winds and the, uh, the rate. Has it surprised you that this storm developed? Because I didn't hear anything about Lee. I heard about a storm developing a few days ago, but a, or maybe a week ago. But I, I hadn't heard anything about this thing until it became sort of the, the monster talk um, among people who are talking about weather issues and hurricanes and the kind of summer weather we've had. Has it surprised you that this thing became what it, what it became? And you're saying it's not going to go back to what it was, but did it surprise you at all? It did. Yeah, we're just not used to uh, these storms growing this fast. We just had Idalia hit Florida with a Category Four before it made landfall. Uh, so it's it's been a, a very exciting season. That's a good, interesting word. Exciting. the uh, The environment today. You're an expert on the environment as well. Is that how much of a factor is that in in the cause and the creation of severe storms? Um. The environment is a huge impact. So if it's um, if you have a warmer surface, it's easier to get the energy into the storms. So that's one of the things people are concerned a lot about these days. But there's also other environmental issues that weaken the storm. So if under ideal conditions for storm growth, we could take that. Go ahead. We could take that uh, temperature and estimate the strength of, uh, of a hurricane. But under other conditions like happened last night, uh, the winds and other um, ended up weakening it. And that's harder for us to forecast. How worried were you that it would make landfall, say, in Florida or the Carolinas or Georgia? This storm, 
No, this storm, I'm not worried about it. Uh, uh, if storms start far enough out at sea, they tend to curve up north, unfortunately, toward Canada. Yeah. And you said it's not out of the realm of the possible that it would hit Atlantic Canada. If it does that, what category do you think it would be? One, two, three? I would guess one, but uh, if it interacts with some of um, the environment in other ways that make it stronger, which has happened in the past, it, it could be stronger. Do you have concern that we're heading into a cycle, because this is what we've heard certainly from people who've been talking about I mean, climate change, the number one issue they're paying attention to. It's falling down the the uh, intensity list as far as issues to be discussed in this country are concerned, because the economy is the number one issue. But do you have concerns that we're heading into a cycle where we're going to be seeing more intense weather, perhaps more Category 5 storms, and the, the North American continent is going to be impacted by a really major storm? Not suggesting one, two, and three, are not major, but something that is really monstrous. It, it still remains highly unlikely that that'll happen in um, the northern states. Florida is, and the uh, Gulf Coast are more likely to get uh, hit by that kind of storm. Um, it's the, the statistics for these are so odd to work with because there's so few storms each year. It's really hard to say from uh, whether we're having an upward trend or whether the sea surface temperatures are affecting things. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to make a lot of simplifying assumptions to say sea surface temperatures are going to, going to increase the storms. And under some conditions, those are really good assumptions. I have to ask you this. Have you, are you one of the people who's actually flown through a hurricane? I, I haven't. I've got colleagues that do it, uh, but I haven't yet. I don't blame you. I mean, I've seen what goes on in the, you know, documentaries. I've seen what goes on in those aircraft. I, it takes a, it takes, it would take courage and a degree of uh, disregard for one's own personal safety to do this. But uh, so, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. Uh, I, I always think of it as the people that like roller coasters can do this. Uh, <laughs> I, I can I can be in a lot of turbulence. It doesn't bother me at all. Uh, and if if you can deal with that, the rest is relatively safe. <laughs> okay, so we dodged the big one then. Mm -hmm. right? Yes, uh, we hope so. Let's talk economics here. This is the number one issue in this country. It's the issue which resonates most with Canadians because Canadians are hurting, really hurting. You heard it last weekend when the Canadian chartered accountants told us 24% of Canadians, one in four of us, couldn't raise $500 in 24 hours to look after our affairs without borrowing money or selling something we own. One out of four. And more than 50% of Canadians have told pollsters repeatedly that uh, they're within 200 bucks of not being able to pay their bills, meet their obligations at the end of the month. Think about that. So now we have the Bank of Canada this week holding the line on the interest rate at 5%. There have been reports that they will probably not raise the interest rate again. Initially, the story was they may, but now the reports are they won't because the national economy is slowing down and the unemployment rate held at 5.5%. I received an email from a listener just asking, what exactly does it mean that the Canadian economy is slowing? We're going to ask our guest that. 
the uh, the health of Canada's economy and national prosperity is what. It's interesting to know that the Business Council of Canada has just said that successive governments have taken Canada's economic security for granted. And I went back into the little checking on our economy, and in 2021, an OECD report concluded Canada will be the worst-performing advanced economy through 2030. Now, remember, they said that, they released that in 2021, so there was almost a decade to go. So the worst-performing advanced economy through 2030. And they added, and that will continue for the next three decades, so until 2060. In real terms, what does that OECD outlook forecast for Canada and Canadians, if they are correct? Professor Eric Cam, Macroeconomics, Toronto Metropolitan University, joins us. Professor Cam, good to have you with us again. Talk to us first, please, about the holding the line on the interest rate and whether you believe that's going to be it. Hi, Roy. Well, Hi. I sure hope so. I mean, let's let's face it. I hedged my bet last week when I said 50-50 because I'm not much of a gambler, and I don't think we should gamble on on Canadians and their economic welfare, but I was glad to see that the Bank of Canada finally sort of got the message that people are struggling in a very large way. So I'm glad that they didn't raise the interest rate. Um, you asked a really interesting question uh, in your preamble when you talked about, you know, what does it mean that an economy is starting to slow down? Because uh, people will give you different answers, but I will tell you the one that I, I think to me is the most important, which is, when gross domestic product, that is our ability to produce goods and services, starts to fall, uh, combined with or married with when our employment rate starts to fall. So I think when your economy is starting to produce less and employ less people, I think that's a pretty good indicator that your economy is slowing down. And sadly, Roy, that is where we are on September the 9th, 2023. And slowing down does not mean it's painless. It's the opposite of painless. It's the exact opposite of painless. And I'm going to tell you why in two different ways. We know the Bank Canada is scheduled to make two more rate announcements. They're going to meet on the 25th and they're going to meet on the 6th. My guess now is that they're going to hold the line. And most of that is built off of the big economic news this week, which is Something that you and I, Roy, not to pat ourselves on the back, but how long have you and I been saying, eventually, this has to hit the labor market? It just has to. And we've been saying it for about 18 months. And guess what, folks? We're here. The economy added 40,000 jobs in August. Sounds good. Most of it was self-employment. That means there was almost a 0% increase in private sector employment. Nothing good happens, Roy, when the growth in your economy is public sector or non-private sector. That's real growth. And right now that's not happening. And so the two things that you're seeing right now, number one, let's talk about what is, which is a real weakening in the labor market. Jobs are not being offered. These wage increases that have happened, the price increases that are inflation driven are starting to whittle their way down now to employers who are saying, I can't afford to hire that marginal worker, so I'm not. So that's number one. Number one, that person's not being hired. But number two, another thing that I think you and I enjoy talking about are expectations. What message does that send to the economy? Well, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. When the labor market starts to slow, 
It signals to other employers that the economy is starting to slow and we better hold back on hiring that marginal worker now and wait for things to turn around. And so this is my concern today. I've said it before and I've kind of bided my time. When are these price increases going to hit the labor market? Flat out, simply put, if it's too much money to employ somebody, when are people going to stop employing them? And Roy, sadly, I think we're there. So for the Canadians who, the 24% of Canadians who couldn't raise $500 to pay their bills, meet their obligations over a 24-hour period, unless they sell something or borrow something, well, the more than 50% of Canadians who repeatedly told pollsters they are within $200 of not being able to meet their financial obligations at the end of the month. The Canadians who, and you know, this is getting tired, my story about inflation or my definition of inflation, and that is when you go to the gas station and the grocery store on the same morning and you can't afford to fill up at either. For those Canadians, and it's a majority of Canadians now, it's a majority if we look at the 52% or 54% who are within 200 bucks of not being able to pay their bills at the end of the month, for the majority of Canadians, it's just getting worse, isn't it? It is getting worse. And now let's revert back to something that you mentioned last week that I don't think I was as robust as I should have said. You've provided really good numbers. But one of the problems with economics is that sometimes there's numbers we can't provide. And you mentioned last week that CIBC markets reported that there are a number of non-permanent residents in Canada and they could be up to about a million people that we can't track. That's a million people right, that are underreported, we don't have statistics on them, we don't have data, and what if they're just exacerbating those numbers, Roy? Because I really find it hard to believe that that million non-permanent residents that we can't track are the super wealthy. So if we dispense with that ridiculousness because it's foolhardy, then those people are just going to add, what if we grossly underreported those numbers of people that are within $200 of insolvency? or one paycheck of insolvency, who can't find housing right now. We are in a tough spot right now because that that report last week, it may not have seemed terribly germane at the time, but what it signals again to the market is that the reality can only be worse, only be worse than where we are because there's many numbers we cannot account for. And it's the expectations again that scare me because as this starts to permeate through the different markets, the labor market, the capital market, the goods and services market, we know that that's gonna cause a contraction in the economy. And I get really tired of hearing companies when they're asked, are we in a recession saying, no, we're not in a recession. That is just speaking to their shareholders and trying to fool people. We are absolutely on the cusp of a recession, Roy, and it's gonna get worse before it gets better. You know, when when I ride my bike through my neighborhood, the surrender signs are starting to appear more and more on the front lawns for sale, for sale, for sale. So everything looks pretty normal when you just look at the surface. The houses look okay. The lawns are okay. People are cutting their grass, pruning their trees, making sure that everything looks nice. But behind those walls, there is great concern. And again, I see more and more for sale signs showing up. I don't think this is people who just think, well, this is a good time to sell my house. This is a time where people find themselves thinking, I have no other choice. Roy, it's not a good time. We're there because 
80% of Canadians are looking into the crystal ball that is the calendar and saying that we have to renegotiate a mortgage in the next couple of years that we can't afford. I mean, people aren't stupid. And let me also just send a very quick message to our prime minister. The only one talking about these issues is Mr. Polyev. When you look at his success right now and his rating skyrocketing, okay, it's 24 months before an election and nobody wins an election two years before, but Mr. Polyev is the only politician saying these things out loud. You don't hear them from the prime minister. You don't hear them from the PMO. You don't hear them from anything related to the liberal government. And so it's no wonder Mr. Polyev is gaining traction. He's the only one discussing these issues. Professor Cam, let's talk about this uh, report that the OECD released in uh, 21, that this was going to be Canada's economy, was going to be the worst performing economy uh, of the advanced nations. And then in 2030, it's not over. They say it's going to continue for another 30 years until 2060. What do you make of that? And do you believe it? Well, first of all, your story makes me just flat out weepy. Um, And I'm sorry to hear that, except that maybe people can look at you the way I look at you as what you can do when you put your nose to the ground and decide that you're going to be a success no matter what your background looks like. But apart from that, um, listen, we can't predict three decades into the future, Roy. I think one thing that we've learned is I'm not sure we can predict three years into the future anymore. But what the OEC is doing is they're falling back on facts, right? That's all they can do. And they look at a labor market that is shifting now to a disinflationary footing. Um, They know that upward movement in the unemployment rate is going to weigh very highly on household income growth and drag it down. We live in a time in this country right now, competition for workers is easing. So wage growth is further decelerated. And if you like things like the, the, the micro details, um, this week they announced fifth consecutive quarter of declines in labor productivity um, because of rising unit labor costs. And so all that accounts for a fall in hours worked. So you ask, what do I make of it? That's like saying, what happens when we put what I just said into a bowl and mix it? And the answer is an economy that's not growing. The private sector is not stimulating growth. We know that we have um, a staples economy, a natural resource economy that we have single-handedly destroyed by ourselves. We know we should be selling resources, but we're not. We're buying them. We know that our tax structure right now is eroding disposable income. And what, it's, and what our tax structure isn't eroding, things like carbon taxes are. And so I think you know, what that study is saying to Canadians is, 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 is it's time for a wake-up call. It's time to... Stop looking at the future far in its distance, net zero, this and that, and start asking questions that are germane to how do we make life easier for people to house, dress and feed their families today and stop with ludicrous notions of pie in the sky ideas. And I know that people are going to get upset and I get upset, too, when people say to me, you don't give a damn about the environment. Well, of course I do. But I don't give a damn about anything more than feeding children and housing children. It is time for a new model, a new economic model. It is time for new vision and someone to come in and realize that we are doing no service to the wage earners 
of this country, Roy. That's what the OECD report tells me. Is there anything positive that you see? You know, the only thing positive that I see, and I I hope people accept this, because it's going to sound like I'm backdooring out the question, is that if you take everything I've said in the last 20 minutes or so, you would think the sky is falling. And on some level, I do think the sky is falling. But the positive is the sky hasn't fallen yet. Uh, It's bad, but it's not horrific. We've seen horrific, Roy. We saw 21% interest rates. We've seen horrific. Yes. But my definition of horrific is someone who can't afford to feed their kids. And if that number is rising, then the only positive I have is that now is the time more than ever that we have to be interventionist and let's get in and start supporting the disposable workers, uh, sorry, the disposable income of our workers. So is there a positive? Yeah, the positive is, is that all hell hasn't collapsed yet. But please, Mr. Trudeau, we can't let it collapse. We can't let times get tougher. This isn't the Bruce Springsteen song. This is the world. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 